Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, finished through verse 15 last time, pick it up at verse 16. Tonight, as the Apostle Paul is landing the plane, he's ending the letter, and he's been talking about peace, and he gives the Thessalonian church or churches in the vicinity, uh, as well as us, a series of eight commands, which we sometimes refer to as imperatives, things that we are to do. And a lot of these things, in a sense, they remind us of the Proverbs, kind of these short, penetrating statements that God wants us to obey. Now, when we talk about commands, a lot of people kind of push back on, they're like, oh, well, you know, we're people of grace, but yet there's commands all over the New Testament, things that we are told to do, uh, but they're not just so we obey. God's not like, well, you will obey, and, you know, if you don't do it, I'm going to zap you. But God's commands are for our good. And here I would say these, because it's bracketed by what we began last week in the torrential storm we had last week, uh, bracketed by peace uh, sort of at the beginning of this section and near the end of this section. And so tonight he gives us a path to personal peace, but also you might say a path to uh, peace within a congregation. And so that's always important to note when we're reading the Bible. We're Americans, so we tend to read things for ourselves, but he is writing to a church. So when he's writing these commands or these imperatives, these gospel imperatives, we have to remember that it is the responsibility of each and every one of us who would call ourselves Christians uh, to obey these things as best we can. An interesting thing about these Uh, commands, they are stated in what uh, Bible scholars refer to as the present tense. So what is present? It means it's here now. So then five minutes from it, it's here now. So the present tense is something that is continuous. It's something we are supposed to be doing all the time. The idea is a continuous action, so you're always living in that moment. So look at what he begins with, verse 16. Very simple. Uh, Rejoice always. You guys are looking at me like, what, are you kidding me? (laughs) Rejoice always. I think it's the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament, not in the English. Shortest is Jesus wept. That's the one all the teenagers know. Um, Rejoice always. Now, in our culture, a lot of people would be saying, like, are you kidding? Rejoice always. And the apostle's like, no, I'm not kidding. I'm I'm not kidding at all. You see, to the apostle, joy and rejoicing should be a regular predictable, consistent pattern in a Christian's life. And back in chapter 1, way back in chapter 1, we saw that the Thessalonians were doing this already, and the Apostle Paul's not like, like, he's not like, well, I'm not counting that anymore, but what he's saying is don't give up. You had done that well, but it's continuous. Continue to do it. Continue to even get better at it, if, if you will. In other words, Joy in Christ for the believer, uh, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. Love to get a chance to meet you or talk to somebody, uh, you can talk to any one of us after the service. I'm confident that uh, you know, we'll all represent Jesus as well as we can. But, but joy in Christ is to be the center of our life, regardless of the situation around us. Now you say, are you really sure that's what he's saying? He said rejoice Always, always. And biblical joy is something that comes from the inside out and reflects, I would say it reflects a confidence that God is at work in all of the circumstances of our lives. So even when it's not going well, we know that God is at work and that's a cause for joy. In what seems to be a paradox, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he said, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Those are two things we wouldn't think that go together at all, but he's sorrowful for what is going on around him, but always rejoicing uh, in the Lord, and the Lord is at work. Uh, For the Thessalonians, humanly speaking, as we've seen in this letter and and throughout the Roman Empire, for all of the Christians that were, uh, you know, part of the Roman Empire, Caesar starting to take notice of them and not really liking what he sees, there were, there were many reasons not to be joyful. 
and in our lives, let's be honest, there's, a, there's some things to be joyful about, but there's always going to be things that are not joyful, the great to be, you know, things to be joyful about. And for them, it was, it was persecutions, and some of you endure some of that. There was problems that were going on in the church. And yet, yet the answer is, for us, it's interesting, it's to, it's to do what we need to do. Rejoicing always doesn't mean you're just like, well, you know, the Lord knows, whatever, it's okay, I'm not going to bother about it. No, we, we, need, we do what we need to do while we're keeping our focus on Jesus Christ and his mission. That will make Christ the, the subject and the source of our joy, not the circumstances, and so that will enable us to rejoice. In John 16, at the Last Supper, the night before the cross, Jesus said this, John 16, 22, he says to the apostles, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. Now remember, eventually he was able to, the Lord was, you know, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, so they were without him, but he promises that no one will be able to take your joy from you. He moves on, verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. This is a critical part of the, of the, of the Christian life, and uh, there's, how, how do we do that? Well, I think it's good to have a, a set-aside time of the day or multiple times of the day when you pray, not just like, well, thank you for the food, Lord, amen. And, and so, you know, they'll, they'll joke, you know, somebody's had a snack if they pray a long prayer, so it doesn't have to be a super long prayer at dinner time, but... Uh, but we pray, you know, it's good to have set apart times, but as many of us remember, uh, Dr. Robert A. Cook, you know, walk with the king today and be a blessing. And uh, I've actually knew him personally. And uh, he used to say, pray your way through the day. And, and as you're going throughout the day, just continually praying. But we have to keep that in perspective, don't we? It says, pray without ceasing. Jesus was a carpenter. We don't know whether he did wood or he did stone, but let's just imagine for a second that if he, he did wood and he's nailing a chair together or something like that, well, uh, what would happen if he was praying and wasn't concentrating? You know, he'd put a nail right through his finger. Imagine that. He would do that and he wouldn't curse. How about that? He is God, isn't he? <laughs> but we have to, you know, so we have to put it in perspective of that. So the idea is, is living in a constant communion and constant awareness with the living God, and that will bring peace to our lives. You know, no matter what's going on, if we're constantly bringing the Lord into it, it will bring a peace to us. So how, how do we do this, this thing? We, constant prayer, constant dependence on God helps keep our lives balanced and focused, helps us keep our eye on the main thing and, and, and the right things. Again, separate time, I, I think that we should have that. It's good to have, you know, people. some people just do it willy-nilly. Some people use prayer lists. I use, I use prayer cards, and there's different days of the week that I do with that. And, and, and what, do, what do you do when you have to concentrate? You do what, what we refer to as arrow prayers. You just shoot up quick prayers, and, you know, you're about to give a presentation at work, and you're like, Lord, just help me, and you know, help me to do it right. Help me to be honest. Help me not to be nervous or whatever, whatever's going on. You just pray uh, very, very quickly. Now, there's a couple amazing things about this whole idea that, that we, when he says pray without ceasing, we focus on what uh, we are to do. But if you think about it and you go past what we are to do, there's something really amazing that God would tell us this, to pray without ceasing. That means that God wants to hear from you. Did you ever really think about that? We'd be like, shut up. But God's not like that. He, God wants to hear from you. And how often does he want to hear from you? Without ceasing. Constantly. You know, like the little kid. Why? 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 You know, just constant rambling. Yeah, he wants to hear from you. And, you know, uh, a lot of times we say to one another, well, you know, I, I, I didn't want to bother you. And then you hear a reply from someone and say, that's not bothering me. And God says the same and more, that I, I, want to, I want to hear from my children. And it's another amazing thing is God tells you to pray without ceasing. God tells us we are to ask because he is confident in his ability to answer our prayers. 
So, so what does that mean practically for us? Well, loved ones, it means this. God wants you, God wants me uh, to, to bring our biggest needs, our toughest situations, things we think are impossible, or just things that we may think are trivial uh, in our lives and what we are doing. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, Above all, we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the, heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And you're not going to find many guys in the Bible that lived in a worse time than Jeremiah. You're not going to find many people who who had things not really seemingly going that way, yet he was so completely and amazingly faithful because of his confidence in the Lord. Nothing was too hard for him. So verse 18 now leads us to answer one of the most common questions of contemporary Christian culture. You know, a lot of people say, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? It's a, it's a great way to not to do anything, isn't it? <laughs> just like, well, I'm just waiting for God's will for my life. And, and so here's one for you, verse 18. In everything, give thanks. You're like, are you serious? Are you se- Rejoice always, verse 16. Now in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I want to know what the will of God is. Now you, had to, now you know how to answer your friends. Earlier in the, in the book, it was the, your sanctification. Here it is that we are to give thanks in, in all things. And we live, let's admit it, in an increasingly ungrateful world, and thankfulness should be a distinctive mark of a Christian. It should be something that, that makes us really stand out. Now, that doesn't mean we, we discount situations that are bad. I mean, we, you know, we, we said this when we talked about grief a few Sundays ago, that, you know, somebody, somebody loses someone and, and your friend walks up to you and you just had a you know, tragic loss in your family and, you're, and someone says to you, well, at least they're in heaven now. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm happy for them, but not for me. I'm here and I'm lonely. And so, and so we don't want to be like that. But when it comes to, to being joyful, being, being thankful in all things, we look no further than Jesus himself. The night before Jesus was crucified, and he would be crucified by men. He would be abandoned by his heavenly father. The very guys that he's sitting there eating dinner with are going to just take off for the most part. And it says that he took the bread and the cup and gave thanks. So this is my, this is my body. This is my blood. He's, doing, he's, he's showing them what's going to happen to him and yet he gives thanks. Now, let's be totally honest. To give thanks for everything seems impossible, doesn't it? It does. But that's not what the verse says. The verse doesn't say give thanks for everything. The verse says give thanks in everything. And so this teaches us that the pathway to peace is keeping the big picture in mind, is keeping that God is in control, that in the midst of our circumstances, to keep Jesus Christ out in front of us, to keep the Lord out right in front of us, and that, that he is certainly at work. And this is, this is so important to remember because God has the ability to take the heartaches of our lives and to turn them into something beautiful. Many, many people can testify of the time when they were dating someone they thought was the one. And, and their heart was broken. And then looking back on it, they you know, found somebody else who was far better for them. And, and they think, oh, what a nightmare that would have been had I married that person. And so God takes a lot of things in our lives that seem to be not going well or not good at first. And he, and he turns them into good. And, and somehow, if it doesn't turn out good in this life, you will be able to see in the next life how it was for our good. And for that reason, we give thanks in everything. We give thanks in everything, knowing that he's at work. But also remember that giving thanks in everything, and this, of course, I have to pick on all of us the way we, the way we sing in church sometimes. Sometimes we don't seem too thankful the way we sing or don't sing. And, 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 and you know, that we're like, well, you know, 
Lord, I love you. Lord, I need you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but giving thanks is a form of worship. Because what is giving thanks in difficult circumstances really saying to God? I have confidence in you. I think, I think you're really going to somehow work all of this out. And living in constant thanksgiving to God shows us a number of things, but one thing it shows us that we trust God. And, and that we trust him is what pleases him, and that's why it's God's will. Now, I wouldn't say that, that just being thankful in, in everything is exclusively the totality of God's will, because you can be thankful in everything and be unfaithful in certain areas. So I would say there's other parts of it too. But being thankful in, in everything and striving to be that way, trying to be that way, certainly um, is clearly part of the inner transformation that God desires for his people. We've been talking in our studies on Sundays about the law of Moses And the law of Moses was the perfect expression of God's will. And so there was nothing wrong with the law, but it was was an inner thing. It was meant to be lived from the inside out. And what happened was it deteriorated to outward acts, and and then it really meant nothing. People were just doing stuff and, and going through the motions. And so here, when the Lord talks about being thankful in everything, he's he goes after the inner motive of the heart. And obeying God flows out of the heart. It flows out of the heart. It's not just, you know, I'm going to buck up and do it. When push comes to shove, I would say that's, the, that's your last resort, but certainly that shouldn't be that way. We often talk around here about being motivated by grace. We, we obey because of the great love shown to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But a corrupted heart, that will, a corrupted heart will really struggle here. And, and if we allow our corrupted heart to continue to grow and to seethe and to, and to just plant ourselves and just say, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to you know, try to, to be thankful in everything, um, what happens is sin begins to linger. And as sin begins to linger, it begins to grow. And what happens as it begins to jo- grow? What happens to our joy when sin begins to grow? It just, it just fades. Oh, we might be happy in our sin. We might say, oh, sin's good for a season, but we don't have uh, the joy of the Lord. So the progression here to me is very interesting. We are to continually rejoice. We are to continually to pray. We are continually to give thanks. It could be one feeds the other. We rejoice, we pray, we give thanks. And it seems to be that, that joy is the experience of the goodness of God that leads us to pray, that leads us to be thankful, and that leads us to peace. And once again, it's important to remember that the commands are continual. We are to be continually, verse 16. He says we are, in verse 16, to be always. To verse 17, without ceasing. To verse 18, in everything. Now again, the idea is whatever we're doing in our daily life, we focus on the task at hand, but the Lord Jesus is always in our hearts, always on our minds, and we're, we're continually, always, without ceasing in everything, bringing him into the things that we do. Uh, that awareness um, of Christ not only makes these things possible, but I would say this, they become our default. You know how we have defaults? You know, some people, many of you came from a lifestyle where when things went wrong, you went to the bottle. When things went wrong, you went to drugs. When, when things went wrong, you went shopping. When things went wrong, you went to work. Whatever it was, but God is trying to create a situation in us where our default is, whether things are going right or going wrong, our default is we go to the Lord. And interesting, <laughs> this is something the Lord is always convicting me of. I mean, it's just it's just this constant thing that really puts what I would call personal aggravation uh, into a new perspective, and we will begin to see all of these as 
God's will because they are part of God's plan to grow us in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 19 is often misapplied, so we have to try to keep the context clear here as he's writing to the church. These are his parting words. There's been some issues in the church that we've been talking about all along. And verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Another version puts it this way, do not put out the Holy Spirit fire. So again, remember he's speaking to a church because you'll get a lot of people that will say, well, what about me and my gift and you're quenching me and you're putting out the fire in me and it's like, oh, please. He's speaking to the whole church and what is he saying to us? That we don't want to extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives And we don't want to extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the church. So what we're seeing, what he's doing here is he's moving us in a progression of he just told us some things that we should be doing individually and as a church. And we're moving into what we should not be doing. So if you really think about what he's been talking about, the words here are actually very simple. What is he saying? Do not do anything that works against the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work in his people. Don't do anything as an individual, as a church, that works against the works of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people take the Holy Spirit as to mean uh, (laughs) anything goes. And so some of you have been part of churches. It's always interesting to see the different backgrounds some of you have come from, uh, always the people who come from no background, um, they, they hang their head in shame. And I'm like, good for you, <laughs> right? Because you can just learn from the word of God. You don't have all this bad stuff that a lot of us have, have, have picked up along the way. But, uh, you know, a lot of people think that just anything goes is the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is there's a pressure next week to top it. So if we had this wild experience with the Holy Spirit next week. We have to, we have to top it next week. And It's possible, I don't know for sure, but it's possible he could simply be just saying, don't do anything to stifle the previous commands. I mean, those things that he just told us in the previous three verses are the work of the Spirit in our lives. And he could be saying, don't do anything that stifles those those commands. So what, what stifles the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, sin does, doesn't it? Sin does. How about, how about traditionalism? How about, how about extremism? How about treating church as entertainment? How about disunity in a church where people are just striving for their own ways and they're not united in what they're doing? It doesn't mean we all agree on everything, but we have to be aligned in what we're doing. How about, how about the cold shoulder? You see, we don't know what was going on in Thessalonica. We have to really sort of just, you know, put pieces to the, of the puzzle together. Remember, we've said over and over that the Apostle Paul was a task theologian. They gave him a task. This is what's wrong. Tell, fix it. Fix it. Tell us what to do. So we don't uh, know what was wrong, but, but it's quite possible, that, and we know that he's writing from Corinth, it's quite possible that they heard of the extremism that was going on in Corinth in Thessalonica, and the leaders in the church then stopped all the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so any, any, anything that's going on, oh, you're encouraging someone, stop that. Oh, you're helping someone, stop that. Now, most people immediately go to speaking in tongues, and certainly it, it could have been that, but the Holy Spirit uses gifts to edify and build up the body of Christ, yet... The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that everything should be done decent and orderly. So it could be that the Apostle Paul knew, or or the Thessalonians knew what was going on. You know, Timothy came up and visited him. Remember, he's answering the questions that that Timothy brought back after they had gotten run out of town. And it could be they're like, well, what's going on in Corinth? And he's like, oh, yeah, what a mess. Oh, that place is a real mess. And they're telling them what's going on. And, and some of the leaders are going, well, we're not going to let that happen here. We're, we're going to stop that here. We're, that's never going to happen in our church. And, 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 it, and it's quite possible that he's saying, listen, control is good. 
it's good that you are doing things decently and orderly. Con doing things under control is good, but being controlling is not good. And, and, and what happens is if you're too controlling and you're not staying within the bounds of the word of God, you are quenching or you are stopping the moves of the Holy Spirit in the congregation, and that's not good. So as you put these things together in the word of God, there always seems to be a balance that the leadership in any church and the people in any church must be aware of. Verse 20, do not despise prophecy. Do not, excuse me, do not despise prophecies. Well, now, again, there's a lot of disagreement here. What in the world does prophecy mean? And, and it's interesting that we, most of us, because we've been marketed by church marketing people of, of prophecy ministries, which we talked about at length in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, that we think it's solely the prediction of the future. But in the New Testament, I mean, it can mean the predicting of the future. It can also mean the spoken word of God. It can also mean the written word of God. And surprisingly to some, in the New Testament, it's, it's mostly the written word. And I think that's so, we would put great emphasis on the word of God. But there's something we have to remember. The early church didn't have the New Testament. So they had to rely a lot on the prophetic words of the apostles the oral teaching of the apostles, and what are some New Testament prophets. So, so it's different for, it was different for them than it is for us. So now we have the written word. We have the completed Bible, the completed New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament. We have something that we can take, that we can read, that we can, we can share with one another, and we can bring it to bear upon the times in which we live. And we can bring it to bear upon our own lives. And so we have a very different situation with what we call the completed canon of Scripture, the completed New Testament, that, than they had. In, in some ways, you, we could say the Apostle Paul is saying, um, don't despise the Scripture because in doing so, they had the Old Testament. They were, they were perfectly able to raise up the church with the Old Testament. People are like, I don't want to read that Old Testament. Well, they were perfectly able to get the church going in the first century with the Old Testament. They were able to do that. It could be he's saying, listen, don't despise the Scripture, because in doing so, that's how you quench the Holy Spirit. When you despise the, the, the Word of God and the bringing of the Word of God to bear upon the people of God in the times in which we live in, we are quenching the Spirit. Now, one thing we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that all the apostles had a very high view of the scripture. And the apostles, again, Old Testament quotes all over the New Testament, they're all over the place, wanted us to take it very, very seriously. Now, interesting, the amount of prophecy geared towards the time in which we live remember it's continuous, is, is about double the amount of prophecy towards future events. They were just using, they were writing stuff that we could, we could read 2,000 years later and go, it was like it was written yesterday. You just throw a little bit of what's going in on the culture. Some of you go like, you just throw in a little bit of the history. That's why when you have study Bibles, how many of you have study Bibles? The ones with the answers on the bottom? Yeah, okay, so it's like cliff notes. Uh, so, you, so you have study Bibles. And people neglect the most important part of your study Bible is the word of God. Let's, let's get that straight. But the second most important part is not the answers on the bottom. It's the introductions that we don't read. Who wrote it? The history, the culture, the audience, the purpose of the letter, what's going on in the Roman Empire. All of that stuff is so important because that will lead you to uh, to unfold the letter so much easier. Thessalonica, new church, young believers, zealous. Oh, he's coming back. Quit your jobs. He's coming back, right? Philippians, been a church about 10 years. 
Things are starting to settle in. We're getting used to being Christians. We can kind of put it on autopilot now. You know, Apostle Paul's in jail. We'll send him a few shekels, buy him a new shirt or some new sandals or something like that. But it's easy to get that way. So when we understand what's going on in the, with the people that it's being written, and written to, these, these will really help you interpret such things. On the other hand, it, 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 it's possible that the, the Thessalonians were, again, perhaps because of the Corinthian influence, we don't know, maybe they were discouraging people from just speaking things that were consistent with the word of God and the mind of God. And, and sometimes we can be so overly careful that we're stifling everything. And, and we don't want to be that way. We don't want to do anything that's divisive. We don't want to honor false doctrine like it's the Lord's truth. But we also want to be allow you know, some room for people to, to hear certain things from God. I've had plenty of times where people have met me out in the hallway and told me certain things. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> they left and I, my head's still spinning because I know that somehow that came from God to them, to me. Whether it was perfectly delivered or not, I don't know, but it was pretty close. Or maybe for me, I was able to figure out exactly what was, what was being said. And such things are meant to build up the body of Christ. But as we saw earlier, the problem in Thessalonica was it produced an idle group of people that were waiting for the second coming. So the answer to the idle group of people is not to stop everything, to make them more idle. The answer is to preach the truth, to motivate people not by guilt but by grace, by the work of Christ, show Christ and him crucified and how much he loves people. And it's amazing how many people will step up to the plate how many less problems there will be in the church and how the people of God will will begin to grow. I have people constantly coming up to me. Oh, so-and-so was so wonderful. So-and-so was great. They helped me so much. They told me this. They guided me that. I don't sit there and go, I'm supposed to do that. I'm the pastor. I'm like, praise God, less work for me. (laughs) No, 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 it's not what I think, but but that's so good. You know, Pastor Chuck used to teach us that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And that's exactly, what we, that's exactly what we want. But sadly, because of many of the bad predictions over the years, it has, it has soured so many people on the prophetic word. But every time we sit here and, and, and we hear the word of God and, and, and it goes forth and you start to think about, oh, that's the thing. I got to fix that at work. Oh, yep, that's my family. Oh, yep, that's what I got to do. Oh, that's right. That's it. That's prophecy going forward. That's the prophetic word of God going forward into your life. He says, verse 21, test all things. Now, that could be prophecy. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Verse 22 abstain from every evil form, every form of evil. So he says, first off, verse 21, test all things. What is he saying? Don't take everything at face value. Don't take everybody's word for it. Examine things closely for the purpose of seeing that to see if they are authentic and they are in sync with the word of God. Now, this is not only good counsel for church. This is good counsel for all of life. You know, you just think, ask yourselves, does, does this idea that I have, does this decision that I'm making, does it, does it match up with the word of God? Or am I going contrary to the word of God? I mean, what great counsel for today. Test all things. So many people take what some people say as gospel truth just because they're holding a Bible in their hand, just because they have a, an ordination paper. Or, or, or something else like that. Don't do that. Don't do that with me. Don't do that with anyone. And, and pardon my directness. You're like, you never apologize for your directness, Pastor Jim. But pardon my um, on-purpose directness. The rest is not on purpose. That is just simply being lazy. That's just being lazy. And that's being gullible. That is hiring out someone for your spiritual life. You can hire someone to cut your lawn. You can hire someone to do your hair. You can hire someone to fix your car. You can't hire out your spiritual life. 
That's one of those things you cannot hire out. And if it does pass the test, what does he say? Hold fast to what is good. If it passes the test, then hold on to it. It's good. But if it doesn't pass the test, what does he say? Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now, do you remember what that was earlier in the letter? Pretty much limited it to sexual immorality. But now he's expanding it out. He's expanding it out to all kinds of evil, being, telling them to be careful of things that might look good but might not be. Third letter of John, verse 11, he says this, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. You're like, well, how do I know these people, these evil people? Come Sunday. <laughs> Jesus is going to lay them out. Verse 23, we come to his closing words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body. Now, I know a lot of people want to break those things down and when, when I'm pushed up against the wall, I'll, I'll, I'll break them down. But I think the idea is just the complete person. May your whole complete person be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So isn't that interesting? He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he's going to preserve you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God keeps his people by sanctifying them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now you're going to have to apologize. I'm going to have to apologize. <laughs> this, this one verse, I I really had a whole message on it, but I figured some of you had to go to work tomorrow, so I was gonna. So I'm not gonna preach it. Maybe another time. But but there's there's a lot here, and this is his closing prayer for the Thessalonians. And notice his appeal is made to the God of peace. And he says, "Now may the God of peace." What what does he mean? Well, I think he he means when he term, when he talks about peace that that God brings order to our lives, but perhaps even more so, that God is the source of our well-being. Now, let's back out from that for a second, and when we say God is the source of our well-being, we're thankful for that, but that does not mean that we do not have an active role in obeying the word of the Lord and the will of God. In fact, we should, as we are growing in grace we should begin to desire to obey God more and more and more. In light of all the apostle has said to them, perhaps they, they're thinking right here now, you've heard all of these things and you're thinking, this is too much. I can't do all this stuff. I gotta be Mr. Happy and never do anything bad. Like what's, like what, what's going on with this? This is, this is insane. So he, he prays, May the God who saved you himself sanctify you completely. So it's a continuous thing for God too. He's praying that, that, that God will keep you and me until the end. This is something similar to what I say to you quite often. I always say when it comes to obeying God's commands, we do our best with God's help. We do our best with God's help. They, they, they work together. You know, and, and to remember that when it comes to obeying God, we're not alone. And a lot of people think that, that you know, they come to Christ, God saves them, and then you know, it's like a, some bird he throws out of the nest and just like, oh, splat, sorry. Right? <laughs> no, God, God is with us. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us. He's always with us. He, he promised us, I'm, I'm always with you. And this, this balance of, of what God does and what we, we do was, was captured, is captured so well in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not, all, not as in my presence, but only now much more in my absence. Remember I said earlier, he was in jail. They've been at church 10 years. They're getting, things get a little sloppy, maybe. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what are you supposed to do with your salvation? Work it out. How do you live your Christian life? You work it out. You do it. You do it. 
You said, but you said we're not alone. I know. That's why verse 13 is there. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So is it me or is it God? Yes. Exactly. Work it out. Why? Because God's at work at you. And because God's at work in you, what do you do? You work it out. So what is he telling us between what he's saying here at the end of Thessalonians and Philippians? He's saying, listen, God is committed to our complete sanctification. We'll talk a little bit more about sanctification in a minute, to our our becoming more like Christ. He He is so committed to that, and we will experience that commitment as we passionately pursue the things of God. See, there's the fact that God is with us, but if you don't pursue him, you could be a Christian. A lot of people are Christians, but they don't experience the fullness of the Christian life because they're not pursuing God. So the perception of God being with them is not perceived. They're being sanctified. They're being made more like Christ. They have the ability to experience Christ, but because they're not tethered to him, because they're not passionately pursuing Christ obeying Christ, doing what he says, following closely with him, praying to him, talking with him, listening to him from the word of God. They're not experiencing him. Now, this is an interesting thing. When you talk to people about God having an interest in your life and God committing himself to you, if you don't think God has committed himself to you, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. For some people, the fact when you tell them that, that God is interested in them, you know, you tell people God loves them, and they're like, eh, he loves everybody. What's the big deal? Nothing special about that. But when you tell people that God is interesting them, interested in them, for some people it means very little. It means next to nothing. And I think most of us know it seems like it's getting worse. Your, your family members, you're just, some of them they just, just really don't want to hear about it. Your friends, your coworkers. Other people, this, is, I don't, this might even be worse in some ways. Other people who are Christians, because God is interested in them, it's a source of pride. Like, well, of course he's interested in me. <laughs> who wouldn't be? Oh, moi. <laughs> I'm not all that interested in you, bro. Right? My goodness. Yet for a true follower of Jesus, the fact that God wants to hear from you, pray without ceasing, the fact that God is interested in you, that he cares about you, that changes everything for the true Christian. That changes the way you think. That changes the way you live. That changes the way you care for others. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified is to be separated to God for his purposes. And in the process, as we yield to the process, we become more like Jesus. So God's sanctifying work in your life and in my life, coupled with our yielding to it, our going with it, our obeying, not fighting him on it, is how he brings about peace in our lives. Do you know people who, fight, who are fighting God and are miserable? A lot of us know people like that. You tell them about Jesus and they're, like, they're so angry. They're just fighting God. Don't give up. They make the best Christians. Just, if you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 9. So, so you say, well, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that God, I, I put my trust in, in Jesus, Pastor Jim. How can I be sure he's going to be with me all the way to the end? Well, he answers that question in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. You say, that's awesome. I love it. What's he going to do? Well, you know, this is one of these verses that's easy to take out of context. What's the context? Our final sanctification and glorification. That's the context, that he's going to take us all the way to the end. And here the Apostle Paul reminds us of God's character. He is faithful. He is faithful. He keeps his word. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we're not part of it. Remember, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So it doesn't mean that we're just kind of just standing by. We try to be faithful too. That's why people are, are often say to me or they'll you know, 
meet me and they go, oh, I heard you on the radio or something like that. And they'll say to me, I, I can't figure out whether you're Calvinist or Arminian. And I always say, well, to be honest with you, whatever the passage is, is what I am. <laughs> and, and I tell people that I am, I'm a, I didn't make this up. A lot of people would say they're this. I'm a compatibilist, which means that I see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as compatible. I don't see that. Spurgeon said, people say, you know, how do you reconcile the two? He said, why would I run and reconcile two good friends? They're not, they're not enemies. They, they, they're compatible. They, they work together. Now, listen, I, without a doubt, God is faithful and I'm not. I understand that. But that does not resolve me of my responsibility to do my best with God's help, nor does it, you know, resolve, you know, take any of you away from the same thing. Does it absolve you from, from doing your best with God's help to be faithful? Now, it's very interesting that we know God is faithful, yet we're told to pray continuously. So somehow our prayers, we're told to hold on to what is good, to abstain from what is evil. Somehow our prayers and our efforts have a place. Don't ask me how much. I don't have a clue. But somehow our, our plans, our, I mean our prayers, our efforts have a place in the plans and purposes of God. And that should be very humbling. Now, it might make us bold. Hopefully it does make us bold. We're like, listen, this thing is true, man. You've got to listen to this. It's the best news I've ever, you'll ever hear in your life if you really will take the time to focus and to listen. We see that in verse 25 about how our prayers matter, what we do matters. He says, brethren, pray for us. That is not an unusual request from the Apostle Paul. What is he saying? He's there with his, with his buddies and they're writing this letter and he's like, hey, guys, new believers. This is, the, this, is the, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a bunch of new believers who sometimes don't know which end is up in Thessalonica and he says, we need your prayers. It's amazing. He is, he is humble enough to ask for prayer and at the same time, he's theologically sharp enough to know that prayer is part of the mission of the local church, that it's part of the mission of every believer. Now, it's safe to assume, because Timothy has been there and back, that they know what to pray for him. He's not just like saying, well, you know, give him a nice day, Lord. He's, you know, Timothy, how can we pray for you guys? God probably had a very specific list. This is, this is, let me just tell you, I, I'm, I hang out with the Apostle Paul. I can tell you what his prayer list is. People say, what, what, is, what is your prayer list, Pastor Jim? Just, we have a prayer guide outside our prayer room, and, and you look on the back of it, and it, got, it has the things that I'm constantly praying for. They don't, there's, there's offshoots of it for individual people here and there, but there are princ- things in principle that I constantly pray for, for our congregation, and these guys were, were serious about praying for him, or he was serious about asking for it as well. And it always fascinates me about this guy, that he was an apostle. He was their founding pastor. He was the most gifted theologian wandering around the, the Roman Empire. And he says, I need your prayers. Because he was human. Jesus said to the apostles, stay here and pray. And they fall asleep. Verse 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. So this is, um, that doesn't mean you have to go around, you know, don't kiss me guys, I'm going to smack you. Um, This is the encouraging affection we are to have for one another. You know, I know some guys get the wrong idea as they walk up to the girls. I'm here to greet you with a holy kiss. No, I don't think that's that's it. It's probably just a symbolic, culturally acceptable gesture of peace meant to tear down any walls that divide people who are to be united in Christ. 
and, and I guess you would say in our culture it might be a hug or a handshake and a kiss in their culture, was a sign of the close relationship that, that people had. And what's Paul saying? Live in a way that would identify you as the family of God. Now, that's one of the things where I think we as a church, I mean, the church at large, not just our church, but the church at large, um, really have an ability to, to speak to people. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Another thing is to realize that a church is a gathering of very diverse people. Like people will look around and go, um, man, what, what do those people have in common? You know, or they'll, or they'll, they'll, they'll see, um, you know, maybe they'll see somebody out to lunch and somebody's in their 20s and they're with somebody who's 80. And, and they'll be like, oh, look, it's, it's, you're, there you are with your grandchild or your great-grandchild or something like that. And you're like, oh, no, no, we just go to the same church. Right? You tell the waiter or waitress, they're like, really? You go to the same church? Right? You're out to lunch together? You guys are out to lunch. Right? But, 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 but it's that diversity that really that says a lot. It's a, it's a diverse group of people who love God and love one another. That's why there, there should never be anything. Do you ever hear the expression, a cold church? A cold church is not a church. There should never be ever such a thing as a cold church. It shouldn't exist because God's people are not to be cold. Perhaps he's just saying, you know, as an example to all of us, he's saying, listen, convey my love to everyone in the church and and, and greet them in the church, you know, with a kiss from me. You know, every once in a while I'll, I'll see someone from a church that I was at in years and I'll mention somebody I know and and uh, I'll say, you know, when you saw me and you gave me that big old bear hug, and they'll go, yeah, I go, would you please do that to them? And say, I got a present for you from Jim Kevney. And uh, they'll be like, oh, the money he owes me? No, no, no. <laughs> give, give him a hug. Because that's the way we are to be. Verse 27. Verse 27 is, this is very strong language. Very strong language. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, and epistles are simply letters, be read to all the holy brethren. So he wants to, I want you to read it to every person in the church. And a lot of these letters were circulated. They've made their way to New Jersey, right? And so they're circulated. And I want you to read this to all the holy brethren, all the brothers and sisters, all the people that are called the people of God. Now, this is a question a lot of you ask me. You say to me, why don't other churches read and study the Bible verse by verse and line by line? My simple answer is this. I don't know. I really don't know. No, I'm being serious, really. I, 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 can't, I can't really answer that question. You'd have to ask them f- for that because the language here is so strong. So strong. He says... I charge you that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. What is he saying? Read the whole letter to the whole church. The whole letter to the whole church. Every word. Not not just a verse here and a verse there. Don't skip the parts you don't like. Don't tell the people what they only want to hear. Or if you're a nasty pastor, don't be pastor nasty. Don't just tell the people that are the difficult stuff. Tell them the whole thing. Read the whole thing to them. You say, well, why? Because every word in the Bible we believe as Christians is divinely inspired from God to his church. And therefore, every word is important. And therefore, we should hang on every word, whether we like it or not. A lot of times people say, well, it wasn't very applicable to me. And I'll say, not yet. But if you're willing to take it in, it's deposited in your heart for when you need it. But actually, if you're willing to take it in, don't be surprised if you use it at work tomorrow. Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't know what to do. And you say, well, 
the Lord told us to pray continuously. Let's pray now and let's continue to pray about that. There's your open door right there. There's right there. Every week, hey, how's that going? I'm still praying for that. How's that going? I'm still praying for that. You know, when people are under stress, your prayers aren't weird to them. I've been on tons of hospital visits of people I don't know. And I'd say, would you like to know something about Jesus? No. Can I share a few things from the scriptures? No. Can I pray for you? Sure. (laughs) Dear Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. (laughs) So I just pray the gospel. (laughs) But whatever I was going to say, I just pray it. (laughs) But, 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 but that these are the ways to talk to people. And 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 what happens is that that when you stay close to the word of God, you guarantee the people of God of a good flow of the right information. So the right information is coming from God to the people of God into the church of God, not some guy's opinion. And that's why I think there's so much urgency here. That was something he battled constantly in the Roman Empire. False teachers coming in with their opinions, sounded good, sounded reasonable, no power. There's no power in my opinion. There's zero power in my opinion, unless you're my children. Then there's some power in my opinion. But there's no power in my opinion. So he says, stay close to the word of God. That's why he has his urgency in this. Verse 28, we hear the Apostle Paul's pastor heart. He says, the grace, his favorite concept, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The Apostle Paul loved to preach the grace of God that came about because of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what God did through Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, we said it earlier, God knows... The Apostle Paul knows that the, that the grace of God is with any true believer. But, but when he says that, he's reminding of them that, but I also think he's telling them that his desire is that he exp- they experience the grace of God. That experience includes an identity in Jesus Christ as well as the peace and sanctification of, that a follower of Jesus Christ is meant to experience. So how do we get it? Well, we receive it all by faith, and I would say by submission to the Lord Jesus as we walk through this life, and as we are with Jesus, we will start to become more like Jesus than we were before. You see, A lot of the things that he has said in this final section were true of Jesus. He told them that you were called by God, and and Jesus was called by God to be our Savior. He came to earth, and he lived a perfect life. That is so important for him being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why when when you hear these people talking about these these sins of Jesus or these things that Jesus was doing, please, when you see those things on the History Channel, stuff like that, immediately you say, they don't believe that he's God become a man. They don't believe he's the Savior. They don't believe he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins because if they did, they couldn't possibly say that. There's going to be a lot of people that that will hear what Jesus is going to say this Sunday and they'll be like, my Jesus would never say those things. You're right, because he doesn't exist. But that's what the Lord has to say to these false teachers. What does it mean that Jesus led a perfect life? It means he held on to what was good all of the time. And he abstained from what was evil all the time. All the way up to death, even death on a cross, in your place and in my place, what did he do? He prayed for his followers. And the scripture teaches that he still does that right now. And the Apostle Paul says we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. And sadly, of all the nerve from hell, seriously, Jesus Christ was betrayed with a kiss from hell 
in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas Iscariot. But now, even after all of that, his faithfulness and our unfaithfulness, he invites men and women everywhere to be saved. He invites men and women everywhere to have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. All they need to do is simply this. Admit they've been living with their back to God. Turn. Jesus used the word repent. Turn to God and look up at that cross instead of trusting in yourself, saying, I trust in you. I trust in your perfect life. I trust in your death on the cross. I trust in your resurrection. I trust in your ascending to heaven, and I trust that you now seat seated at the right hand of God and you will return as, as, as a savior for your church, for your true people, and as a judge for people who don't believe in you. Turn to him. Put your trust in him. Forgiveness of sins is yours and so is heaven. And then you will become a new creation, the scripture tells us, and you will begin to experience the sanctifying work of God, the love of people, the love of the people of God and the meeting of Jesus Christ in the word of God from this moment forward and all the way continuously into glory. Well, let's stand and pray.